Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome back. This is Father Matt, and today we are going over the fifth installment of our series called Exodus to the Empty Tomb, how the second book of the Bible helps us understand the most important event in the history of the world, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last episode, we took a little detour from our study on Exodus and talked about biblical typology in general. Why do we read the Bible typologically, um, that is, with the literal and spiritual sense? And, And the answer is essentially twofold. First, Jesus himself gives us biblical typology, and we looked at the road to Emmaus where he began with the Pentateuch and showed how the Paschal mystery was foretold, not just in prophecy, but also prefigured in the deeds and events of the Old Testament. And secondly, we saw that the account of the road to we saw in the account of the road to Emmaus how typology restored and rejuvenated the faith of the, the disciples, these two disciples who had essentially given into despair. So typology can do the same for us, even if we aren't struggling in our faith now. Uh, the day will come when that very well may be the case, and, and typology can be one of the many tools which can help us not only weather that storm but come out of out of this said storm with a stronger faith. Today, we are going to wrap up Passover. Um, So in episode three, we talked about many ways Passover prefigured the Paschal mystery. I won't recap them here. You can go back and listen to that. But there is one final aspect of Passover I wanted to talk about in this episode, and that has to do with the Passover meal called the Seder. All right, so the Seder is a ritual meal which began Passover, Passover being a week-long feast. What's a ritual meal? All right, well, in any ritual they're going to be prescribed words and actions, okay? I think the ritual we're all most familiar with is the Catholic Mass. So at Mass, there are prescribed prayers, chants, readings, etc. But there are also prescribed actions of both the priest and people. So the big red book that I say Mass with, it's called the Roman Missal. Uh, Not like a weapon missal, M-I-S-S-A-L. comes from the Latin word misa, miso, which means, it's hard to translate, but it means to be sent or to send, uh, comes from, at the end of Mass, uh, the dismissal in Latin is ite misa est, go, you are sent, is kind of a rough translation of it. It's where we get the word Mass. Anyways, little detour there. In the Roman Missal, you will see there are two uh, different colored texts. So there's some text is colored in black ink, and another set of texts in red ink. We're supposed to, in general, say the black, do the red. Okay, the black gives us the words of the prayers, the red uh, gives us the actions uh, that we're supposed to do. So for instance, at the beginning of Mass, we begin with both a ritual gesture and words in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and we cross ourselves in the sign of the cross. Okay, so the Seder the, the Passover meal was a ritual meal, okay? There were four courses, predetermined courses for this meal. And with each course, there would be a set of prayers, narratives, psalms that would be sung or chanted, um, you know, a question and answer, kind of a back and forth. And there were, of course, four cups of wine with each of these courses. Now, at the Last Supper... Um, there, there is no fourth cup, 
so, so Scott Hahn's book, which I've been quoting a lot, is called The Fourth Cup. Obviously, it, it deals extensively with this. And it goes in, and there are a lot of, uh, there's, uh, I mean, if you're interested by this topic, I really encourage you to read The Fourth Cup because we can't really do justice all the various details he goes into in that book. Uh, but, but this is one of the prominent questions he had before he became Catholic is, is this fourth cup? What's the deal with this? And here's what he has to say, quote, among the difficulties presented by the Last Supper narratives is the way they end the Seder prematurely, leaving the liturgy unfinished. Jesus and his disciples exit the room and go off into the night singing a hymn, see Mark 14, 26, but they neglect to drink the cup of wine prescribed to accompany the hymn, the fourth cup. This is a glaring omission. Indeed, Jesus draws attention to the omission and signals that it is intentional. As he takes the third cup, he says, Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mark 14, 25. End quote. Scott Hahn uses the example of violating people's expectations at a, at a you know, at the time he was a Protestant pastor. Um, and, and, Passover, even more so than the Protestant services he presided at, was a tightly prescribed ritual, and so absences would have been all the more shocking. Scott Hahn says, quote, especially if a rabbi chose to stop just short of the climactic moment of the most essential liturgy and the most important feast of the year. Even 20 centuries later, the omission remains a scandal to readers who have lovingly observed the Seder throughout their lives. But Jesus did skip the fourth cup. He said out loud that he was doing so. He offered no explanation, end quote. So what's the deal with this fourth cup? Well, Han brings up some interesting uh, connections later in the Passion narrative. For example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, his soul is sorrowful unto death, and he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew 26, 39. It's the cup that he's asking be passed uh, from him if possible. Then in St. John's Gospel, when our Lord is crucified, we read this line. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. Uh, it's John 19, 28. Scott Hahn makes the point that Jesus, quote, Jesus was thirsty long before his, this closing moment of his life. His words, therefore, must reflect more than a desire for a last bit of fluid. More things fall into place upon reading what follows his expression of thirst. Uh, a bowl of vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. That's John 19.29. Only John noticed that hyssop, the branch prescribed in the Passover law for sprinkling the blood of the lamb, was used, which we, we read about in Exodus 12.22, end quote. So vinegar, if you don't know, is essentially sour wine. It's wine that's gone sour. And then finally, in John 19.30, we read that after Jesus drank the vinegar, that is, after he drank this sour wine, he said, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Consumatum est, it is finished. What was finished? Scott Hahn says it was the Passover liturgy. What we see here is that the Passover liturgy means the events of the Last Supper on Holy Thursday, from Holy the Last Supper on Holy Thursday to the cross on Good Friday, and ultimately to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, are intimately connected. We haven't talked about the resurrection's connection here, uh, but, but it's 
pretty easy to see. Christ on the cross is both our great high priest who offers something that God the Father loves infinitely more than sin displeases him, his only begotten Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ's sacrifice on Calvary is the completion of the Passover liturgy. Yet unlike the Passover lamb, Jesus did not simply die, but by rising he conquered death, thus liberating us from the, a far worse kind of slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Yet this victory has to be applied to us, and Christ chose to do this by instituting the sacraments. All of the sacraments, in a very real sense, communicate the grace Christ won for us by his death and resurrection. But the Eucharist, above all, in the Eucharist, we participate in the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery is, in a mystical way, made present to us at each and every Mass so that we can unite ourselves to this sacrificial offering of Christ and we can share in the abundance of fruit so that the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world can be applied to the doorposts of our life. Father John Harden, uh, in his Catholic Dictionary, he offers a nice summary when he writes, quote, The deliverance of the Jews from Egypt was a foreshadowing of the Christian Pash, when through the, uh, Pasch, uh, when through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and the applications of the merits of his blood, the human race would be freed from the bondage of the devil and sin. Good Friday in the early church was called the Pasch of the Crucifixion, while Easter Day was styled the Pasch of the Resurrection. Uh, the Sundays from Easter to Whit Sunday were also referred to as the Pasch. Easter is the Christian Passover. If you're wondering, <laughs> if you're wondering what in the world is Whit Sunday, uh, it's Pentecost. We don't really use the term anymore. Uh, Whit Sunday uh, it comes from an old English term uh, meaning White Sunday, which referred. We're not exactly sure. It referred either to the newly baptized who would, you know wear like a white alb, or to the color of vestments once used for the feast. We've used red for quite a while, uh, but I don't know, maybe 900 years ago, they were, they were wearing white vestments on Pentecost. Uh, what is really important about Father Hardin's analysis, though, is this idea that Easter is the Christian Pentecost. Um, and, you know, I, and I know I've cited Scott Hunt's book quite a bit, The Fourth Cup, uh, another free commercial, but this will probably be my last citation. He talks about Easter as the Christian Passover. And this connection, it's, it's lost on us in the English language because as Han points out, quote, most modern languages still use the same word to describe both the Jewish holiday known as Passover and the Christian holiday we know as Easter, end quote. So for instance, in Spanish, which all the Diddy students know, I possess an incredible fluency in this particular language, Spanish. If you couldn't pick up my sarcasm there, I'm, I'm pretty terrible at Spanish. Anyways, in Spanish, the term for Easter is Pascua. So in Mexico, Holy Week, Semana Santa is followed by Semana de Pascua, uh, Easter Week. Uh, English and a few other languages, unfortunately, lose a word, uh, use a word which isn't related to Passover. So, you know, he Han runs through a bunch of modern languages, which, which essentially they're using the same word for the Jewish holiday of Passover, Christian holiday of Easter, shows how Easter is the Christian Passover. It's kind of like this, uh, you know, the Jewish feast of, uh, that comes 50 days after Passover, uh, Shavuot, uh, was, is also called Pentecost, right? There's a Jewish feast of Pentecost and a Christian feast of Pentecost. Uh, now, Shavuot is still called Shavuot by, by a lot of Jews, so 
you know, you don't hear a lot of talk about the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, but you see it in Scripture uh, for sure. In fact, you might have noticed, hopefully you noticed, Easter is a date that moves from year to year, right? Unlike, say, Christmas, which is always December 25th, um, you know, Easter varies. This year it was April 12th. Last year it was April 21st. A couple years ago it was on April 1st, April Fool's Day. It was kind of ironic. Why doesn't Easter have a fixed date like Christmas? Well, Christ rose from the grave on the Sunday following the Feast of Passover. In the early church, two, two rival customs basically developed. Uh, so in the West, which we're talking about the Mediterranean world, so the West would be essentially the Western half of the Roman Empire. In the West, the Feast of Easter was always on the Sunday after Passover. In the East, they celebrated Easter on the day of Passover every year, on that, that first day of Passover. Uh, and so this was, this was something of a conflict in the early church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1170, uh, records for us that, quote, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, the church agreed that Easter, the Christian Passover, should be celebrated on Sunday following the first full moon, the 14th of Nisan, after the vernal equinox. Because of the different methods of calculating the fourth day of the month of Nisan, the date of Easter in the West, in the Western and Eastern churches is not always the same. For this reason, the churches are currently seeking an agreement in order to once again celebrate the day of the Lord's resurrection on a common date, end quote. Uh, there's also a difference um, between Jewish and Catholic calendars uh, in calculating the 14th of Nisan. Uh, so about the 14th of Nisan would be, um, the, that night would be um, the, the first day of, of Passover. Uh, so usually you see this overlap between the Catholic celebration of Easter and the Jewish celebration of Passover. About 85% of the times you see that, that overlap. About 15% of the time, Easter and Passover will be a month apart. But it, I mean, when you talk about calculating different calendars, it gets, gets really complicated. Really, though, the, the, the takeaway is that Passover, this ritual commanded by God in the book of Exodus which is a memorial of the liberation of Israel from captivity in Egypt, and a memorial not in the sense of merely remembering past events, but in some mystical way being actually able to participate in them. This is the key to understanding the Last Supper, the cross, and Easter Sunday, the thread connecting all three. It's the Christian Passover. But we aren't done with the book of Exodus yet, because as we've said uh, throughout this series, you know, Christ wins this victory for us. Christ Passover uh, liberates mankind from sin, death, and the devil. But this liberation has to be applied to us. The blood of the Lamb of God must be applied to the doorposts of our life, right? It's not enough to just sacrifice the Lamb and, um, you know, we must consume the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb must be applied to the doorposts of our life. And so um, Exodus has more to tell us about this, and, and we're going to get into that next. All right, let's return to the book of Exodus. Um, after we, we've talked about Passover, now we're going to talk about what happens next, the, the tremendous miracle, the waters of the Red Sea, the passing of the Red Sea, and, uh, or excuse me, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the typology associated with that, okay? Uh, so after the, the first Passover, the firstborn of Egypt, of Egypt are killed, the final plague, and Pharaoh tells Israel to get out, and Israel leaves. Uh, we see this at the end of Exodus 12. Well, eventually Pharaoh and 
the rest of Egypt realize, wow, we just let a huge amount of free slave labor get away. So Pharaoh gets his chariots and charioteers and pursues the Israelites in the desert. Meanwhile, God leads his people towards the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots and charioteers catch up to them. So let's begin with Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. Quote, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they were in great fear. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. The Lord then said, The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go on dry ground through the sea, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God went before the hosts of Israel, uh, went before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and the night passed without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses searched, stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. Uh, all Pharaoh's horiots, uh, horiots, chari uh, horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the hosts of Egyptians and discomfited the hosts of the Egyptians, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its wonted flow when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled into it and the Lord routed the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not so much as one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptian dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did against the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. End quote. 
There is a lot there to talk about. Uh, this is a stunning display of power on God's part. I mean, God is omnipotent, so it, it really shouldn't be that stunning. But, but Pharaoh has been obstinate in his, his uh, uh, unwillingness to, to heed the Lord uh, in the Lord's command that he let his people go. Uh, and so uh, God's glory is, is revealed in this display of his power. And he also, he, he saves Israel by this display of power, of course, as well. But much more is going on here than just a mere display of power. Uh, no, the church has always seen the crossing of the Red Sea as a type of baptism. Let me explain. The Israelites, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and when they came out on the other side, Pharaoh's army was crushed. They were definitively freed from slavery. So too, when we emerge from the waters of baptism, we are freed from the spiritual slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Here's what St. Augustine has to say about this typology. Quote, the people according to the Old Testament are liberated from Egypt. The people according to the New Testament are liberated from the devil. Just as the Egyptians pursue the Jews as far as the sea, so Christians are pursued by their sins as far as baptism. Observe, brothers, and see. Through the sea, the Jews are liberated. In the sea, the Egyptians are overwhelmed. Through baptism, Christians are liberated and quit of their sins while their sins are destroyed. Those ones come out after the Red Sea and journey through the desert. So too, Christians after baptism are not yet in the promised land, but live in hope. This age is the desert, and the desert indeed it is for Christians after baptism. If they understand what they have received, they will understand that they are living as wandering exiles longing for their native land. You know, what, what I like about this quote, uh, not only does Augustine explain very simply and beautifully the typology of the crossing of the Red Sea and baptism, but baptism is not the end of the Christian life. It's the beginning of this uh, pilgrimage towards the true promised land of heaven, just as the Israelites, they didn't enter into the promised land immediately. They had to wander in the desert for 40 years. So after baptism, uh, we're in this pilgrimage. This, this We are not, uh, this life we're strangers and sojourners. We are exiles in this world, longing for our true homeland of heaven. Um, we will next time talk about some of the typology with that. I, I think the next episode will be our last one. We'll wrap up Exodus by talking about uh, the typology of wandering in the desert and uh, the typology of, of the promised land. As always, if anyone has any questions, please email me, chaplain at diddycenter.org. Uh, please stay safe and God bless.